Hi, everyone. We are in the final message of our series through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 9 this morning. So if you haven't already found your place there in a Bible, you can hit the pause button and go there. Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9. In the early chapters of Genesis, we see that God has a very particular vision for the kind of world he wants to lead us into. It's a world where human beings flourish within a comprehensive shalom that binds all of creation together in harmony. And scripture will later come to refer to that vision as the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Now, over and against that kingdom vision, which is made clear in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, in the chapters that follow, 3 to 11, the Bible shows us how we as human beings have continually rejected and resisted and suppressed that vision for our world, choosing instead to build our own kingdoms. And we choose to build these kingdoms on the idolatrous idea that we don't need God to be central to our building project. And so the Bible can be understood uh, in one way as a tale of two competing visions of what does it mean to build a kingdom? What does it mean to build the right type of life? As Christians, we're called to serve the kingdom of God and not the kingdoms of this world. But what does that calling look like? How can we be sure our lives are aligned to God's kingdom and not to a competing one? Now, in today's account of the building of the Tower of Babel, we find a story that is incredibly instructive and rich and helps us to answer these questions, but it also gives us a fresh vision for discipleship to Jesus. And it has powerful relevance for you personally. Found in Genesis 11, the story of the Tower of Babel is an old one and probably familiar to many people. It's a story about humanity's first attempt to build a kingdom, what God thought about it, and then what God did about it. I'm going to be reading Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9. Feel free to follow along. Now the earth had one language and one common speech. And as men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And they said, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves and not be scattered all over the face of the earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. And this is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. And from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now, if I were to ask you, why did God scatter the builders of Babel? Uh, you probably get to dip into one or two reasons that are traditionally offered to understand what's going on in the story. The first reason is that God is punishing the people for building a city 
Right? The people of Babel are ignoring God's mandate to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth, which necessitates spreading out all over the earth. Right? That's a command that's given to Adam and Eve. Then it's reiterated to Noah. And instead of spreading out, this community is banding together and trying to build a city. So maybe God is punishing them for urbanization. And that's an idea that kind of makes sense because in the very next chapter, Genesis 12, God is going to call Abraham out of Ur, which is a city, into a nomadic lifestyle. And so maybe there's something about cities that God dislikes. But if you think about the entire scope of scripture, that doesn't make sense because urbanization seems to be perfectly in line with God's intentions for humanity. In fact, if you look at the entire sweep of the scriptural story, the Bible starts in a garden, but it ends in a city in Revelation 21 and 22. And so the decision to build a city in and of itself wasn't the problem. Now, the second reason that people offer for kind of the root of the judgment that God brings against the builders of the tower is that God is punishing the people's pride, right? Many commentators believe God's punishment is against an attitude or a posture of the heart. In the text, it says that they say to themselves, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. So we're shown that pride and vanity is absolutely at the heart of this building project. There's this desire to make a name for themselves, to exalt themselves. And that's often quoted as the reason for God's judgment at the end of the story. Now, and the story gives us lots of evidence to support this reasoning, particularly in relation to the tower the people of Babel built. Uh, when you and I think of a tower, we're likely to think of something like the CN Tower or the Burj Kafka in Dubai. But ancient towers were ziggurats. We might be unfamiliar with those, so you can pause right now, Google ziggurat, ancient ziggurat, see a picture. Many of the ziggurats in the ancient world were connected to a mountain motif of some kind. Just as a high mountain is rooted in the earth, but it touches the sky, ziggurats were believed to be the place where heaven and earth meet. There was a ziggurat in Nippur that was called the House of the Mountain. There was one in Ashur that was called the House of the Mountain of the Universe. And in Larsa, there was an ancient ziggurat called the House of the Link Between Heaven and Earth. But probably the most famous ziggurat of all, the one in Babylon, which is likely the focus of this story in Genesis 11, it was named Etamenanki, the house of the foundation of heaven and earth. Now, it's important to understand that the entire purpose of a ziggurat was to provide a bridge between the human and the divine. But although ancient ziggurat builders often spoke of reaching the heavens with their towers, their aim was not to personally ascend to godhood to escape this world, but to cause the gods to descend to earth, to pull them down as it were. The ziggurat was not so much a stairway to heaven, but a stairway to earth. 
And by building the tower, the builders of Babel were creating a new religious view of God. One scholar that I read said, Man was no longer attempting to be like God, but more insidiously was trying to bring God down to the level of man. So by providing this staircase for the gods to descend or to be forced or pulled down by an exalted humanity, the builders of the Tower of Babel were in a sense declaring to the gods in the heavens, you're not all you're, not all you're cracked up to be, you're, you're weak, you're vulnerable, you have points that we can exploit, you're limited. There's not that much difference between you and us, and we know it. And if there's no if there's no real difference between you and us, we are going to figure out a way to have you serve our agenda. So the idea that God was punishing the pride and arrogance of the builders of this tower is definitely part of the picture. But pride doesn't give us the whole picture, and it doesn't quite explain everything in the story, especially these strange details that we encounter. There's another dimension to what's going on in this story and its relevance, therefore, to, for us that I want to explore. And it, in doing so, I think it really opens up the story to have a richer explanation as to understanding what's actually going on, why does God scatter the people, and what all of this has to do with us as disciples of Jesus today and as a church. Now, if you flip back in your Bible to Genesis chapter 10, we're introduced to a grandson of Shem named Nimrod. This is in verses 8 to 10. We read, Cush was the father of Nim Nimrod, who grew to be a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty warrior before the Lord. And that is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Erech, Akkad, Kalneh, and Shinar. Now in verse 8, we're introduced to this character Nimrod. And that's a name that in Hebrew means to rebel or to revolt. Jewish scholars note that mighty warrior or mighty hunter should not be interpreted positively. It's meant to be interpreted negatively, like tyrant or conqueror. In verse 9, the scripture notes that Nimrod is called a mighty hunter before Yahweh. One of the royal responsibilities of kings in ancient times was to keep the wild animal population thinned out so that citizens would be safe. And this text may refer to that function, but there are other documents that we have from that time period that spoke of ancient kings hunting the men of a city capturing them and then carrying them off into slavery. And it's likely that this label, Mighty Hunter, is highlighting this practice. So Nimrod is someone who hunted men, and he does so before Yahweh, or in plain view of Yahweh. He knows he's doing something violent and exploitative. He knows he's doing it before the view of God, God sees him, but he just doesn't care. He's doing it in opposition to Yahweh. And that's why the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, renders this verse, 
Nimrod was a mighty hunter against the Lord. Now we read that Nimrod is the founder of the Babylonian Empire and he organized the enterprise that led to the construction of the Tower of Babel. He, he would go on to build some of the world's uh, first major cities uh, in Mesopotamia. In the biblical story, Nimrod builds the world's first kingdom. And he does so on the back of violence and slavery and oppression. Now, with that background in place, I want to draw your attention to verse 3 back in Genesis chapter 11. They, the builders, said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. There's a new technology in play. Before you only could build with stones, but now you can build with bricks. And building with bricks opens up all kinds of new opportunities to build. And I'm using build here as a, um, as a metaphor for both, you know, not just building concrete structures, but to build society. They have a vision for the kind of world they want to build. Now, it's interesting that this verse highlights that one of the major, major turns for these builders was that they don't want to build with stones and they were excited to build with bricks. And the reason why that's interesting is because whenever God commands altars to be built in the Old Testament, they were explicitly to be made with stone, never bricks, or even stones that were roughly formed or hewn through the use of tools. So in Exodus 20, 25, God says, If you make an altar of stones for me, do not build with dressed stones. Or those are bricks. Those are stones that have been reshaped by uh, human craft. God says, You will defile the altar if you use a tool on it. And in Deuteronomy 27, 5, God instructs his people to build an altar to the Lord your God, but here's the caveat, he, he clarifies this, an altar of stones. Do not use any iron tool upon them. Now, as modern readers, we read that, we hear that, and we're like, what's the big deal? Uh, why no bricks? Why no hewn stone? Well, when Babylon in Genesis, or the empire of Egypt that we're introduced to in Exodus, build their empires. The Bible is very careful to note that both empires build with bricks. Verse 3 mentions that Babel was built with bricks and not stones twice. And the Egyptian empire that uh, we're introduced to in Exodus chapter 1 says that they made the lives of the Israelites bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields and in all their hard labor the Egyptians used the Israelites ruthlessly. So very early on the Bible connects building with bricks with building human-centered kingdoms and empires that were anti-God, that were inhuman, cruel, and unjust in their practices. To build with bricks is to construct cruel societies and systems that exploit and oppress people 
leading to ever-deepening injustice and human suffering. And to build with bricks means valuing people only as a means to an end. You can, you can think about it this way. When you build something, a structure with bricks, it's pretty straightforward and easy, right? A brick is a brick. Every brick is the same as every other brick. That's the point. Bricks are efficient. They are made to be interchangeable and functional. And when the Bible talks about Nimrod in the case of Babylon or Pharaoh in the case of Egypt, building their empires with brick, what the Bible is saying is that these were tyrants who saw and used people as bricks, as interchangeable, expendable pawns to be used for their larger empiric ambitions, right? If you were a Babylonian, not part of the ruling class, just Joe Babylonian, you existed to be reshaped to fit the assignment that Nimrod and the larger empire had for you. Building with bricks instead of stones is a biblical way of communicating that these were governments and ideologies that were intentionally using and abusing people for the benefit of those in power. People in these empires were dehumanized. They were abused. They were told again and again, but that's what you were made for. So deal with it. You're a brick. Your only purpose is to fit in to our agenda. And as a result, people in these kingdoms were stripped of the dignity and their, their understanding of what it meant to be an image bearer of God, which God communicates so powerfully in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. That fundamental foundation of dignity gets erased by empires who want to communicate to people that their only value is as a brick that fits into the larger social system. And to what end? All of these empires had an agenda. What was it? What was the end goal that all these worldly kingdoms and empires were seeking? There's an Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann, who highlights three goals that he says were common to every empire that we encounter in scripture. Number one, every empire was after unlimited knowledge in order to control mystery and uncertainty. Number two, every empire was after unlimited power to ensure security and military domination. And lastly, every empire was after unlimited wealth so that those in leadership could satisfy any and all desires that they had. So what was the end game of all of these empires? Knowledge, power, wealth. Now, please recognize none of those things are bad. They are all good gifts from God. Knowledge is good. Power is good. Wealth is good. But the world's kingdoms always turn these good things into ultimate things, what the Bible calls idols, that replace the central focus that should be on God, and they become the central focus. And when this happens, what we see is that the world's kingdoms, human systems that place knowledge and power and wealth at the top of the priority list, always are willing to use and abuse people to secure those things. 
human systems and societies that say the the end game why we exist is to accrue knowledge power and wealth always end up using and abusing people to secure those things and so if you think about this as it relates to babylon's agenda right they're they're saying they're declaring we want to build a kingdom but we don't want to build god's kingdom we don't want to build god's way and to god's ends we'll we'll do that to suit our own ends thank you very much and we we want to build so that we have access to unlimited knowledge and power and 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 wealth and so first what we're going to do is we're, we're going to make bricks meaning that we're going to teach people that they actually aren't made in the image of God, that they don't serve um, a divine purpose, that their only value lies in being a productive member of our empire. And then we're going to teach them that their highest purpose is to fulfill our agenda. And then after that, once, once they've been properly indoctrinated, then we'll build a city and a tower and our building project will be able to move forward. Now, maybe we can begin to see why God tells his people again and again in the Old Testament, don't build with bricks. Build only with stones. Because to build with stones is to build societies that respect and honor each person as a unique and valuable image bearer of God. To build with stones means to build a world where humans can flourish in their relationship with God, with other people, with themselves, with creation. When you build something with stones, the process is much slower. It's not necessarily efficient. It takes a much greater level of creativity and artistry. Think of Irish stone walls and how much different it is to craft an Irish stone wall versus simply a brick wall. And the results are so beautiful because any structure built with stones by its very nature is one of a kind, right? It's unique because each stone in that structure retains its uniqueness. It's not artificially reshaped to fit the convenience of the builder. The builder carefully builds the structure, taking into account the uniqueness of each stone that he or she is building with. Our family, when we moved into our new place, we built a fire pit and all we have on the property are stones, are unhewn um, stones. And so we had to look around for stones that fit together and we had to rearrange them and we had to uh, try building it this way and then realize oh that wasn't going to work the stone needs to be over here it would have been so much more efficient to just get a bunch of bricks put them in a circle do a second level done but we love our little fire pit and our little fire pit is a unique little fire pit there's not one like it in the world because it's uniquely constructed using individual stones See, when you build with stones as a society, what you're doing is you're building with an understanding that people aren't a means to some greater end. They are the end. People 
don't exist to be used and abused in the pursuit of knowledge or power or wealth. Knowledge and power and wealth exist for the flourishing and blessing of people, for the common good, for God's glory. Right? Knowledge and power and wealth are to be leveraged to serve people. That's what it means to build with stones. Understanding the difference between building with bricks versus stones, it really, really helps us to make sense of the response from God that we read about beginning in verse 5. It says, But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. And the Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, confuse their language, so that they will not understand each other. This phrasing in verse 6, that nothing will be impossible for them, that's not about God being threatened by humanity's greatness. But it's God being shocked by the potential dehumanization, life-destroying practices that the world's kingdoms are capable of, right? It's as if God is saying, if I let their sin go unchecked, there is no telling how much worse it's going to get. No rebellion will be too great for them. If those in this ruling um, political class really do see themselves as gods that are to be served by um, people, that are supposed to be under their care, but are increasingly under their exploitation. Verse 8, so what does God do? The Lord scattered them from all over the earth, and the, um, they stopped building the city, and that's why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So God's confusing of the people's language, his scattering of them, it's probably not accurate to see it as a broad vindictive judgment against the Babylonians, um, the, the, the entire society's uh, city or pride or sinfulness. Yes, there is an act of judgment here, but I think the story is trying to hone and focus that judgment against Nimrod and the leaders of this project who are trying to build an anti-God, anti-human empire. Because if you think about it from the bottom, right? Think about it from the average Babylonian's perspective. When God scatters this building project, how is that received? Well, you would likely receive it as an enormous act of love and undeserved mercy for the average person, right? In scattering the people, God is actually saving them. He's scattering them so that they can rediscover that they're not bricks. They are stones. They are valuable. They have dignity. They have a divine calling and purpose on their life. They are not meant to serve tyrant kings who set themselves up as gods. In verse 7, the Hebrew word for confound or confuse that, that is used to talk about God confounding or confusing the language of the people is the Hebrew word navla. 
And it's a unique form of the Hebrew stem to confuse. And it's also a rearrangement of the Hebrew word levana, which means brick. So there's this really, really, uh, to a Hebrew uh, reader or listener, not so subtle um, kind of jab here, right? How does God confuse the language of the tower, the tower builders? Well, he, he, he bricks, he bricks the project. He confounds it. He, he bricks the empire's plans by creating a plurality of languages. God has subverted this claim by the leaders of Babylon to everyone else that you're just bricks. And he does this through a stone-making act that establishes and champions human diversity and undermines Babylon's death-dealing value of unlimited knowledge and unlimited power and unlimited wealth. And the message, at least from my perspective, that God is sending Babylon is pretty clear. Build a society. You can build cities. But I will not allow you to build with bricks. I will judge and I will bring to destruction building projects that treat people like things. Projects that oppress, that violate, that diminish people's God-given significance, I will condemn. I will bring them to naught. Instead, what I want you to do is build societies, build cities, but build with stones. That was the message for Israel. Build in such a way that people know me. Build in such a way that human flourishing is enhanced and expanded. Build in such a way that you are a witness to the world around you, to the other worldly kingdoms, that you serve the true and living God. And those who serve him and his agenda move into deeper and ever-expanding circles of uh, wisdom, guidance, true life-giving power that serves other people, and deep security. Let's bring this story home to each one of us personally. Many Christians will claim allegiance to God's kingdom. But what value system are you functioning within? Meaning, as you move through your day, as you move through your week, you might say, I'm, I'm a Christian, I serve Jesus, I'm all about Jesus and his kingdom agenda in the world. That's awesome. Are you actually functioning within that value system? What drives your daily commitments in your relationships or in your marriage, your business, your personal goals, your school, how you spend time and money? Are your values driven by an agenda that is seeking to build with bricks or an agenda that is seeking to build the way God builds? with stones as individuals couples families as a church we have not just an opportunity but it's a calling to build a kingdom of stones instead of bricks but to fulfill that vision we have got to keep Jesus 
and his good news gospel central to everything we do and how we do everything. And there's two reasons for that. The first is that we need to keep Jesus central because Jesus is the true Etimananki. Right? He's the actual bridge between heavens and earth. Remember the point of an ancient ziggurat, an ancient tower? It was to have the weak gods descend or be pulled down in order to serve humanity. And the irony, as the biblical story unfolds, is that that is exactly what God does. God, the Son, condescends. He comes down in order to serve us and to save us. He dies at our hands. He says in Mark 10 that he came not to be served, which is the logical thing. A God comes down to be served. No, he says, that's not why I've come. I haven't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So as Christians, we are called to build with stones. And that means to emulate this cruciform pattern where we pour out our lives for other people. We look at knowledge and power and wealth. Neither is things to be avoided or as things to be exploited at the expense of other people. We see those things as uh, whether they're meager or much in our lives, we use what we have to bless and serve those around us. And only the gospel, only a vibrant, lived, surrendered relationship with Jesus will be able to sustain us in that um, pattern of pouring ourselves out for other people. And the second reason why we can only build with stones if we keep Jesus central is because he's the actual master builder. His is a kingdom that is going to have no end. His is a kingdom that has already surpassed the power and influence of both the Babylonian kingdom and the Egyptian one combined. But his kingdom continues to expand today. It's not even done. And what makes Jesus's kingdom distinct from every other kingdom the world has tried to build is that his kingdom is built without one brick. The master builder only builds with stones. He doesn't build with the strongest, the most powerful, the most mighty, the most influential. In fact, the New Testament shows us that generally speaking, our king builds through what the world would consider to be the weak and the worthless, the poor and the powerless, the, the broken and the dismissed. This master builder can take what the world sees as rejects, losers, outcasts, the marginalized. Um, the New Testament lumps this into a dismissive title of sinner, right? Jesus is always getting flack from the religious leaders because he's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, kind of scum of the earth. Jesus calls those people. He forgives, forgives them. He puts his spirit in them. He gives them a new hope and a new power and a new future. And he says, come and follow me. I have a building project that I want you to be a part of. 
I have an agenda, but it's not an exploitative one. In fact, the more you follow my agenda, the more whole and healed your life is going to become. You are a stone. You are not a brick. Do you understand what I mean by that statement? You have a divinely given dignity, value, and irreducibly beautiful individuality that can only be discovered as you turn your life over to Jesus and reject any system, person, ideology that wants you to believe you're simply a brick meant to fulfill their agenda. I want to share with you a scripture that shows you how powerfully Jesus is committed to helping you understand your uniqueness. In the early chapter of Revelation, there's a number of letters that are written to churches, a number of messages, and to the church in Pergamum, Jesus writes these words, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who is victorious, I will give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. You're a stone. You're not a brick. Don't you dare allow any Nimrod, any Pharaoh, any worldly authority to convince you otherwise. You are a precious stone that God intends to use in his kingdom project of love, justice, and righteousness. And what he's building is beautiful. In 1 Peter, we read, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. God wants to build his kingdom in us, through us, with us. But the way he builds is different than the way the world builds. Let's allow him to build us as a church, to be a kingdom of stones and not an empire of bricks. Let's allow God to carefully and masterfully craft us into his purposes for his world. Let's let our lives, individually and collectively, tell a different story to the one that the world is telling. In him and for him, let's build a kingdom using stones and not bricks. And may the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all this week. God bless, guys.